everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and today I'm joined by one of my favorite guests, pastor, author, and friend, Emmy Kegler. Emmy joins me in this conversation to talk about her new book, All Who Are Weary, Easing the Burden on the Walk with Mental Illness. As both a pastor and a patient, Emmy has an intimate relationship with mental illness and its complex connections to our faith. In our conversation, we talk about her story of walking with mental illness, the church's response, and what we can do to ease our own walk with mental illness, or as we walk alongside someone who does. At a time when more than half of us will be diagnosed with a mental illness or disorder at some point in our lifetime, we live in an age where mental health awareness and healing is desperately needed. Emmy's book, or our conversation, is not a map to a cure, but rather a companion to come alongside all who are weary, to help us love ourselves and others better as we trust in the promise of a lighter load. So join us and listen in on our conversation. We will jump in. Emmy, welcome back to the Her Story Speaks podcast for the fourth time. I counted Yay. after I saw that comment that somebody, you know, that Leah said, you should just make her your co-host. So I'm like, God, how many times have I had her on? I hope she doesn't feel like I'm just using her for that. No, not at all. Not at all. I <laughs> love spending time with you. You always have a seat here. Of course, if you wanted to be a co-host, Emmy, I would open that seat. But just you saying yes so many times in these conversations is amazing and enough for me. So Thank you for that. And I was looking. So November 6th of 2019 is the first time our episode aired. Oh my gosh. Um, so two years ago, almost exactly. And you and Marcy both were that November and you both are the, so instrumental in changing my mindset about racism, queerness, all of that. So Marcy is yeah. so fantastic. Like all of the, the work that you two have done together in the past mm-hmm. two years has been really phenomenal to witness, especially Um, for, for me, like the past two years have been pretty rough mental health wise with the pandemic. And so just watching the two of you do as much work as you've done, curating a community and like continuing to put out content has been really, really beautiful. Um, just because I felt like my creative well was a little empty. And so just watching you two work was just really like, okay, other people are doing the work and I don't have to feel like it's all on like that. I'm somehow failing the world because I'm not working as hard as I could. Like it was, it's just you two are a gift. So thank you. Ah, Well, I feel the same about about you. And when times when I like question faith and God, I'm like, no, no, she has God is still real because how do all these connections and things happen just like spontaneously? So no, yeah. Marcy is a gift. I was actually exchanging texts with her while I was waiting for you so that you you enabled me to have some time to text with her. So no, you and her are though probably neck and neck for the most most times you've come on the podcast. So I appreciate both both of your voices are just so so important and so life-changing and life-giving for so many people. And I would say the same about your new book, Emmy, which we're going to talk about today. We're going to shift gears. All our past conversations have been about the LGBTQ plus community, queerness, and that does tie into mental health, but we're going to shift the focus big time today and talk about your new book called All Who Are Weary, Easing the Burden on the Walk with Mental Illness. And my gosh, talk about a needed, needed book at the best timing. And when I think about that, we first recorded in November of 2019, it's like, who would have thought what was coming? I had to check that date because I was like, no, that had to be 2018 because 2020 came so quickly after that. And little did we know what was coming. Yeah. I just like every now and then I've, I've had a couple of those sort of slingshots where I'm just ripped back to like January or February, 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I went down and saw um, my godson run in a cross country race. And I was chatting with somebody who recognized me because um, I'd visited at his church. And I was like, oh yeah, that was back in February, 2020. And she's like, oh my gosh, really? Has it really been that long? I'm like, yeah, because it's like one of the last times that we, we, we stopped seeing so many people for so long. Yeah. I so distinctly remember that time and just reconnecting and working on a project with a friend right now that I met in January, 2020 and going like, oh my gosh, we haven't, you know, not only have we not seen each other in person, but we haven't seen so many other people in person. Um, I know. And for me, just, you know, my dad passed in January, yeah. 2020. And I remember you reaching out to me and it was just like, my God, all of that just came like a crashing waves. And, you know, that's why I said the timing of your book is so Oh my goodness, spot on. But you, because so many, one, in the pandemic, 
I don't know, would you say more mental illness developed or people just became aware of it or there are more things that triggered what was already there? Like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think it's both that some people experienced the pressures of the pandemic in whatever form, right? You know, losing your job or Mm -hmm. or compromising your job, having to teach kids at home, um, you know, the the massive isolation that we've gone through for, you know, safety and health and protection of all through social distancing, that for some people that did trigger mental illness symptoms. And for other people, for for a lot of people, I think just being alone with your thoughts Mm -hmm. so much more Mm -hmm. when people are working from home or teaching from home or, you know, just not able to go out and socialize the way that we, we were accustomed to, we really stopped being able to fill our minds with other things. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you had to deal with your own brain. And I've seen a lot of people who were like, you know, this time at home, made me deal with mental illness symptoms that I've been having for a while, but, you know, had just sort of been push, pushing to the side. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. And I still kind of wrestle with that in my own mind. Cause I know just like, you know, I mean, and just like you admit readily you're on medication, I am too. So there is that chemical imbalance, but then there's also the situational with the grief and the isolation and the loneliness. So, um, figuring out how those two work together is definitely interesting, but I think they, and then I guess the other thing I really want to dive into today, like we've done before with the scriptures on the LGBTQ plus community, because, you know, in this age of so many, what I think 2020 did for a lot of people too, was the, the whole deconstructing of their faith and with the politics that we saw, like in questioning their faith and really coming to terms with this religion that also really did not help my mo- the walk with mental illness that really added to it or made it harder. Um, so I want to talk about that today because I know my experience, my oldest daughter as well, is really found the church not a safe place and Christian counselors not a safe place for the walk with mental illness. So your book does a great job of addressing that and coming from the Christian, obviously you're a pastor. So you're coming from a Christian perspective and so many books, counseling books, books on mental illness coming from the Christian perspective do not help at all. So I think that's the other reason your book is just so, so needed of not throwing out your faith with your mental um, illness healing. So, okay. I mean, I didn't let you give an introduction. So just give it a quick, just give a quick, like who you are in your day to day, just on this off chance that somebody is just tuning in for the first time has never heard you speak on this podcast. Sure. Hi, uh, my name is Emmy Kegler. You can use the pronouns she, her, hers for me. Uh, I live in Minneapolis with my wife, who's a veterinarian and we have two dogs and a cat and we, um, I'm, I serve as pastor of a small neighborhood church up in Northeast Minneapolis, which also has an outreach ministry uh, led by and centered around um, LGBTQIA church adjacent people. So people who are still seeking connection with Christian community, but for a lot of reasons have found that, you know, sort of standard engagement in church is not safe or spiritually uh, salvific for them. And I also live with mental illness. So uh, I live, my depression is probably 20 some years old. I think I've done the math recently, but I don't remember what it was. And I also live with social anxiety. Okay. And in your new book, you talk all about that and lots of other things, Emmy. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. But before we do, can you just share more of your walk with your mental illness? Because, and that part of your story, because every time you've been on this podcast, we've talked about your walk with coming to terms with your queerness and loving your full self, but your walk with mental illness is, is part of your story and part of your journey. A quote in this book, you said, just like my queerness, depression was not something I was supposed to talk about in church. So take us back to when you first really realized, like, this is not, quote, normal, what I'm grappling with, with this sadness or depression or the anxiety, just kind of wherever you want to start, but where it really started to click with you that this is not what normal people, I hate to use that term normal. (laughs) You know what I mean, though? Okay, we're just, okay. Um, So a lot of people will use the term neurotypical, but neurotypical and neurodivergent can often be also in relation to autism and ADHD, which I don't cover in this book because um, I think that processing disorders um, or or processing um, divergences are maybe a little different than mental illness. Mm -hmm. That was where my research led me to was just these shouldn't be lumped in in the same way because they're um, they're not on the same, um, not in the same category. So anyway, um, 
I, I talk about people who just, who, who don't live with mental illness and people who do, which is clumsy, but it is what it is. Um, and, and going back to that normal term, yeah. I'm thinking like, I think having some degree of mental illness is more than norm, actually, you right. know? I mean, right. if we're really being honest. Mm. Yeah, statistically, <laughs> a lot of people live with different mental illness symptoms in, mm-hmm. in different ways. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that because we've created sort of these two categories of like normal or mentally ill, and we've you know created those categories throughout history of like when you categorize people as insane or whatever, but the fact that we've created these two different boxes and like the, the dream is you get yourself put in the mentally healthy box and you just stay there is very different, especially for what we've experienced in the past two years of like, it's not that hard to move from one space to another. It's not like being, you know, pulled out of one entire box and into another. It's very, it can be very situational. It can be very, um, a very delicate chemical balance. And I think yeah. people who haven't, maybe you lived with mental illness on a chronic basis, really want it to be like, you know, as long as I do X, Y, and Z, I'm never going to end up in the box of being, you know, crazy or insane or whatever. And the truth is that it's, it's much more like a sliding scale and it's, you, you could end up there because of situations. And for me, um, we can start identifying some depressive tendencies in me. Um, if we look at like report cards and journal entries and things that I was doing in school, we can start identifying depressive tendencies as early as 10. Uh, I wasn't in therapy or in um, a medication treatment until I was 14 because we, it's really difficult to parse out for a teenager. Um, you know, you've got all these hormone fluctuations and you're changing schools because you're going from elementary to middle school and there's this whole new friendship development and school and its expectations are changing. You're getting involved in different extracurricular activities. You go through a goth or an emo phase and because like that's what everyone in the world around you is doing. Um, and so, you know, I think for my, my parents trying to determine, you know, when, when had it gone to a point of we need to address this on a medical and chemical basis was really difficult to nail down. And I don't blame them for that at all. people with mental illness symptoms will often, you know, know that something is wrong and do some work to mask it or find ways to engage with it um, in, in ways that are socially acceptable. We see this in um, people who experience mental illness and then go into the creative arts, right? You talk about Van Gogh and like, how do you channel um, the experience of the world when you, when you know that you're experiencing it differently than the people around you, or at least different than what it's expected? How do you channel that into something really effective? So like, I would write for, you know, for a fifth grader, I wrote some really good poetry. Like it's not, you know, it's not on the level of anything um, professional, but like I had a pretty good grasp of the English language and metaphors and things like that because I spent all this time in my head. Um, Mm -hmm. And I figured out, okay, this is how I can employ that for like approval from my parents and my teachers, um, recognition from some of my classmates, although like poetry doesn't exactly win you like friends and, um, and romantic partners always in middle school, but it was there. Um, you know, like I figured out how to channel the feeling of sadness and the feeling of distance from the world of just feeling like something about me can't engage with the world around me the way that I'm quote unquote supposed to. Did you think it was your, your queerness mm-hmm. at that time? Because I know there's a tie in and I, I can't fully get my mind around that either when you talk about the chemical imbalance. And so, yeah, maybe talk about that part of it as well. Yeah, I think there was some. And I think one of the things that happened when I realized I was gay was that I saw a cessation of some of those symptoms because Mm -hmm. I finally felt like, okay, I understand why I experience the world differently. I understand why I feel alone and isolated. Um, I came out when I was between, like I kind of came out in fits and starts between 14 and 16. And that's um, 2001 to 2000. mm, Nope, that's wrong. 14 would have been 1999. Yeah, that sounds right. 1999 to 2001. So there weren't a lot of um, gay role models in the media. It wasn't really, you know, we were, if we were on television as characters, we were like stereotypes of ourselves. This is kind of the Will and Grace era. And so there's, there's growing understanding, but not a ton of acceptance and not a lot of conversation around it um, in middle or high school, which is very distinct, I think, from today, where like a lot of middle and high schoolers know about pronouns and know what it means to be gay or bisexual or pansexual. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. You guys are like Mm -hmm. (laughs) way ahead of the curve that that I was at. And so for me, I don't know that it's ever possible to, to sort of 
parse out which exactly like which parts of me are, you know, which parts of my mental illness are chemical or situational and which parts of it are, um, you know, because I grew up gay in a society that wasn't really prepared for that. And I mean, mental illness is really about that question of like, how much of this is, you know, my own actions and participation in the world, how much of it is situational, how much of it is chemical. And that's a lot of the balance of therapy and, you know, therapeutic practice and self-reflection and medication is that those are all really meant to work together to try to figure out, you know, not so much to solve the equation, but rather to figure out, okay, with where you are now, how do you move forward? Right. And you're really good about going into that in your book, especially, you know, when we look at other marginalized communities, the black community and the trauma in their body and the degree of mental illness and the not being able to get help. I mean, they're so interrelated and you just can't look at one little, little part as a fix. Um, and like I said, you go really well, you go into that in your book. So, okay. So carry, carry on with your, your, your own journey with that. Um, so you got into therapy around age 14 or you really started like, you know, your mom really started recognizing like, no, this is an issue. Tell us a little bit how that played out. Yeah. I think mom was the driving force behind getting me to therapy. And I know I hopped between a couple of therapists before I found someone that worked well for me. And of course, you know, at 14, I don't know what's all going on behind the scenes with like Mm -hmm. what's covered with healthcare, um, you know, and how do you get access to a therapist for, you know, within that structure. It is a daunting process. Like we can talk about that later, but that's been my week of searching for therapy for myself and family members. And it's like, God, we don't make it easy. We still don't No insurance. And it is, it's been more apparent to me, even this week, therapy is a part of privilege to Mm -hmm. get it because so many aren't taking insurance right now to have the time to call and find. I mean, that is a huge barrier in the mental health field of the access to good therapists. So you were struggling with that at 14, trying to find a good one. You did. And then, um, yeah, just share a little bit more of your life, your life with that. Yeah. Um, and I, I went through different phases of, um, what kind of therapies worked for me. So talk therapy on an individual level. I did a little bit of very early, um, CBT. I live with one of the things I don't talk about in the book, cause it's a really, um, it's kind of a subset of symptoms. I live with trichotillomania, which is compulsive mm-hmm. hair pulling. Um, and it was really bad. And that was actually one of the, the sort of motivating factors, I think for my parents recognizing something mm-hmm. was going on was that I had these bald patches appearing on my scalp. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's still not fully understood. There's some, some, proponents of where to categorize it in the DSM, like want to put it under obsessive compulsive disorders. Some it's like, is it a self-harm or like a, like a nail biting and and, um, skin pulling? Like, is that, is it that category? And those categories are all interrelated, but um, that was one of the symptoms of like, oh, something's really gone wrong here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and often we don't see it or admit to it until finally there is a physical symptom, you know, like myself battling anorexia for so long. It's like, okay, you can't really deny it or just make yourself smile and like everything's okay. Um, or seeing a panic attack because speaking of the panic attack, I mean, anxiety is a big part of your, your story too. And I did not realize the degree, which that has played out in your life. Um, Mm -hmm. gosh, I felt I'm like, gosh, should I have not asked to meet her for lunch that day? Good Lord. I mean, I had struggled with anxiety as well and a degree of social anxiety. So I feel that one. And that's so hard in this world of the expectation, especially being a pastor. So when did you first see that one playing out? I mean, especially the social anxiety as a teenager, like goodness, that's a hard one. So interestingly, um, the depression is what mainly played out for me as a teenager and um, treatment and therapy to some extent helped with that. And then some of my faith practices also helped with that. I would, if I could have sort of these, I got really invested in, um, more, more evangelical or more more emotive forms of worship. So that's when I really got into attending the assemblies of God worship, uh, youth group worships that I went to, and also another non-denominational church in my area, because they were very emotional experiences. You were allowed, like you were supposed to cry. You were supposed to be moved. You were supposed to experience like this really deep, deep, and then this really high, high. And that was really attractive to me as somebody who was experiencing those very low lows. And 
I only realized many years down the road after breaking with those churches over their understandings on sexuality, I was the, I was one of the few people who was crying every week mm-hmm. and like so, something wasn't quite, this was not like the spirit convicting my heart. This was, this kid has, has depressive disorder and, and right. needs more help than just like having these big emotions. But again, like I don't want to disregard that for some people that's actually helpful and, and can be a restorative practice of like having a community come around you when you're, when you're weeping, that can build somebody back up and actually get them out of a longer term cycle of symptoms. What happened is my symptoms didn't cease. They were just sort of band-aided for a week or two until I could get that sort of high again. Um, how did so, you at that time being in an assembly of God church? Cause that's what my grandmother is in. And the limited times as a child, I would go to church. That was the church I would go to, ooh. but they're very much. Yes. They're very much in those messages of like joy comes in the morning. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I mean, I can still hear those songs. So those are the songs you're singing. How did you wrestle with that as a child or as oh, a teenager just, like, going to going to that church? I just believed it wholeheartedly. Like, I was like, okay. yeah, like Jesus is going to bring me joy in the morning. And then like, when it, you know, when it kind of like, if I would hit a low, I mean, I would go every week. So like, I was okay. getting that high and that message of like, yeah, everything's going to be okay. And I'd be like, yeah, okay. it will. And then it would sort of start to peter off. And then I'd get another sort of injection of this, okay. like, it's okay to be sad. Cause Jesus is going to give you joy. And I'd be like, okay. it's okay to be sad. And that would keep me going for like three to four days. Okay. Um, so there wasn't a deep wrestling with it at that time. You oh. were just, you were drinking the Kool-Aid and like, I'm going to get through till my next high. Okay. Right. <laughs> and just like, yeah, of course I'm sad. Like I haven't been back to church in a while. And yes. I mean, I was just like, uh, I was mega dosing on worship services. So I'm going on like Sunday mornings, um, Wednesday evenings, there's like a Bible study going at my public high school, which that's a whole nother thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and like, yeah, I'm just really going to spend time with community. And I do think the sense of belonging, um, of having a place to go and having people that I could associate with was really helpful to me because one of the major lies of mental illness and especially of my depression, but of a lot of different categories of mental illness is this sense of isolation of no one else is experiencing what I'm experiencing. And so even though I wasn't going to self-help groups for, you know, or, or uh, group help uh, for depression or for mental illness in general, just this sense of like, I know other people and they know me and we're in this together of right. this, like we're doing Bible study together or whatever. I have a connection with other people. Um, I think you go into, I read so many books, but I think it's yours that you talked about, like there is like scientific evidence, like those brain chemicals, endorphins, like being in that worship, being with community that does increase our joy and happiness momentarily. Um, But now I think so many of us finding ourselves not in church or at odds with church and doctrine. That's like, where where does that leave us? Um, And you're very good in your book of not, you're not like just knocking the church, like the different things work for other people. You're a pastor. You're not saying that stay out of church but we need to get a healthy, healthier relationship and healthier approach with the church. So Mm -hmm. during your teen years, you're getting high on the church and you're, you're going to wake up. (laughs) And I did also, I was also on medication at the time. Um, And so when I started on um, I've been on the same medication most of my life, which is really um, interesting. A lot of people have to shift. Um, But for me, Celexa has been doing it since I was 14. So I think I started on 10 or 20 milligrams at that point, um, the kind of the starter dose. And that did help a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, you know, college was pretty good. Um, I certainly had rough patches in college, but I did, you know, I flourished in college in a way that I hadn't in high school in some of the same ways of like getting to meet other people who were like me. I met other gay women. Um, I got to like date seriously for the first time. And so that was a really, there were a lot of really positive experiences that I was having in college that, um, helped engage my brain and, and keep me sort of out of those darker places. And again, um, medication, um, what happened after college was this period of, um, working in customer service, which I don't think we've really appreciated for the amount of, um, just base rudeness that people have to experience in customer service and what that can make you feel about yourself in the world. Um, and also just a lot of life changes and some relationship choices that I was making at the time that made me compromise a lot of who I was. And so I started having these, like I started developing an anxiety about work because there were, you know, if you take 
80 to 100 phone calls in a day, um, at least one or two of them are going to be people who are mad about something. That's mm-hmm. just, that's the way customer service is. And, um, and, and I, I really, I didn't have a good protective shield for not taking that on. And some of that is um, maladaptive coping mechanisms for, for many other ages in my life of just like, I, if someone's upset with me, it's my fault and I need to fix it. And, and that's not actually true in customer service. Like it's not usually your fault that that person's mm-hmm. upset. Sometimes the person's upset for no dang good reason. Um, they just need to take it out on somebody. Sometimes the person's upset and it's not your fault, but it's become your fault because you're on the phone. Um, and so I, I didn't have a good way to sort of keep that yeah. out of my heart. And um, the relationship choices that I was making was also putting me in these positions where I felt like, where I created a system that I would never be good enough in. Um, and yet couldn't get myself to step out of those. And so I started becoming just really hyper self-analytical and assuming that everybody else was as judgmental of me as I am of myself. And, and then I just built myself a nice little pattern of social anxiety. Social anxiety for me particularly shows up in interactions with strangers. So, mm-hmm. um, so for example, going out to lunch with you was perfectly fine, but the, okay. if I were in like a really bad social anxiety space, I wouldn't have been able to do going to a, um, a lunch place. I could have had you over to my house. That would have been perfectly fine. Um, but like, oh my gosh, am I going to say the wrong thing? Is like, am I sitting like, where am I supposed to sit in this Panera? Like, am I Mm -hmm. sitting in someone else's chair? Mm -hmm. The, the anxiety about like, what are strangers thinking about me? Um, which is very, I wish you would have just been honest with that. Cause I had told you, I was thinking, feeling the same way you are. I mean, <laughs> my anxiety, well, oh, ah, and um, mine is, mine is relatively well-treated. Um, yeah. so at this point I don't, I talk a little bit about this in the book of like being able to not go shopping for clothes or groceries, like stores for whatever reason, really do it. Um, and my, my medication is such as of now that I can do those just fine, but there was a time in my life when I couldn't yeah. Couldn't do shopping, couldn't do public spaces. Um, and that's but yeah, next time you come balance. up, you can come over for dinner. Okay. All right, Emmy, I'll, I'll hold you to that. Um, now your wife knows that I'm not a serial killer and we're good with that. <laughs> uh, you just have like a anxiety. really long range plan. <laughs> anxiety is such a hard one because I have both of my daughter, I struggle with it. Mm-hmm. Both of my daughters do, but my youngest in particular really does. And it's like to the point of panic attacks, but it's like knowing how much to push yourself outside of your comfort zone to try to get over it or total avoidance. And that's, that's a really hard balance. And again, where therapy can so come into play with helping with that one. And in your book, you have several chapters where you go into different, the anxiety, depression, suicide, eating disorders. I mean, you go into all of those so beautifully. And at the end of each chapter, you have these questions. The one particular with anxiety is so good because it's only questions for people suffering with it, but people that are helping people that are suffering with it. I mean, me and my husband were looking at your anxiety one this week for our youngest. Cause I'm like, here's, these are, I love this question. Five things that you can feel five things, four things that you can see. And like, these are such, so your book is just such, it's a resource for those walking with people with mental illness and those also um, suffering with it, battling with it, carrying it. So another chapter in your book, which is a really hard part of your story that I'm sure to talk about and own, maybe it's not now, but just it's, it's hard to read knowing the degree of pain when you, the suicide chapter, because you did have a really low point in your life of being on the bathroom floor with this suicidal idea, idea, how do you say that word? I mean, ideation. Ideation. Thank you. Words are hard for me. You know, <laughs> I just got corrected on a pronunciation on the podcast, the other podcast that I do, oh the one that I am an official co-host on. Um, oh I just got gosh. corrected on a pronunciation and I was like, yep, I did this, the thing of like, you read a word and you sound it out in your head and then you suddenly mm-hmm. have to speak it out loud and you go, oh, uh-huh. no, uh-huh. so don't worry yeah. about it. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Podcast hosts and having words be hard is just, you know, mm-hmm. so share a little bit about that because I think people, I think it's so helpful to people to hear that a pastor who looks like she might have it all together had a really, really low point. I mean, I know even for my own daughter dealing with self-harm and suicidal thoughts, like knowing that you aren't alone and other people have gotten through this or are still walking through it is so helpful. So share as much as you're willing about that part of your story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as I mentioned, it's the social anxiety, um, that developed in my twenties developed in some part out of the relationship choices that I made and the way that I compromised myself to stay in relationships. And 
in particular, I had invested so much of myself into like, this is what my life is going to look like. And this is how I'm going, this is how I'm going to fulfill my call to ministry. And this is, you know, the process that I'm going to go through. And this is the relationship that I'm going to be in. And when that relationship ended, I felt like, well, I've, I've failed. Like I failed the only thing that I was sure of. Um, and just got to this point of like, I don't know how to keep going. And I was struggling in my um, seminary classes at the time as well. And just felt like, I, like, I, I don't know how to keep going. I don't know how to, um, I don't know how I'm, who I'm going to be now or how I'm going to be in the world or even how to talk to my friends because so much, I mean, again, this is so, so much of what I'd done was invest myself in this relationship that when the relationship ended, I went like, I don't, who, who am I? And how do I even like explain myself to other people? Um, and what happened was I was living with a friend um, and she like had a fully furnished basement space that I could stay in, which was amazing. Um, and she was a godsend at the time. And I was just like laying on the bathroom floor, just feeling so um, specifically laying the bathroom floor because it was cool. And like, I liked the feeling of the tiles against my skin. Um, I just like my editor wrote back a note at one point going like, were you drunk? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, I'm not like, um, and if you were, it would be okay. Emmy. Right. right. Exactly. Like it, that's a very normal experience for some people, but I was like, oh, I can see how that um, came across, but no, I was just laying on the cool tile floor trying to get like some kind of stimulation into my body. Uh, like, okay. I like, I'm grounded. I can feel the cold tile on my, on my back. And I, um, what I experienced at that moment was just this absolute like rage at how many people cared about me because it meant that I would have to find a way to keep going with my life. Um, you know, I'm sitting there thinking like, I don't, I don't have anywhere to go and die. And I hate that. I'm so angry. Um, and just kind of laid there in that feeling for a long time and crying quite hard and rolled over and found my phone and I texted a friend, um, one of my friends from seminary. And I said, can you make, um, can you, I'm not having a great day. Can you check in with me and make sure that I go to an Al-Anon meeting tonight? Cause Al-Anon was like one of the saving graces for me of trying to redevelop a sense of self, um, after having been codependent on romantic relationships for a very long time in my life. And she said, yeah, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not really okay, but I don't really want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I just like, just check in with me. I just need to be responsible to someone. I need to have a next, like a next step plan. And, um, I did go to the meeting and she did check in with me. And then, um, I think I, I talk about this, like a few years later, mm -hmm. she was dancing at my wedding, um, to my wife and she gave birth to her son the next day and was working on the edits for my first book. Like mm -hmm. the person that I texted that day became um, my editor and, and is still to this day, one of my best friends. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons that she could be my editor is I knew I could trust her with so many yeah. like broken edges to my stories and figuring out like, how do we tell these stories and how do we craft that? Because one of the things we talked about when talking about the suicide chapter is like, <laughs> how do you write it with grace and compassion without the dangerous walk of permission. I talk about this in the chapter is like, I don't want to say suicide, absolutely, you know, no, no question. If you commit suicide, you go to hell because first of all, I don't believe that. And second of all, that's not a gift for anybody who's living in the aftermath of a loved one's completed suicide. And at the same time, I know people that for whom that statement got them through, you know, the 30 minutes where they were in their own lying on the bathroom floor kind of position. Mm -hmm. If you threaten people with like, listen, the pain is going to go on forever. If you do this, yeah. they try to find a way to survive. And so I'm like, I, I don't want to take that away from people for whom that is their lifeline. One of the things that they do in training for, you know, suicide crisis hotlines is you're not going to heal the person when they call in on the 1-800 number. You're simply trying to get someone from the really dark space into a space where they're not a danger to themselves. And they are able to then reach out and get, you know, long-term therapy, seek medication, seek a life change that will be able to sustain them. And for some people, the idea that suicide is, a, is an eternal condemnation keeps them from doing that. And then they seek mm -hmm. healing. 
And for other people, the idea that suicide is a lifelong condemnation is just one more death sentence of like, you're going to be miserable in this life and you're going to be miserable in the next life and there's no escape. And like, how how do you write a chapter around that of like, Mm -hmm. hey, um, suicide isn't an eternal condemnation, but also please don't do it was essentially Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to communicate. Um, But I think that in itself, your story, that chapter shows just how nuanced and complicated the walk Mm -hmm. with mental illness is Mm -hmm. because it's not a one size fits all answer or prescription. I think though, what we are sure of and what your story shows is that having a trusted person just to listen and be there and not want to offer a quick fix or throw out a scripture or shame you, it is, is effective. Yeah. In that yeah. walk. And you had, had that friend that you could call. And I went judgment. through my list of friends going like, you know, one of the things is I, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't, I, I'm actually, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure on this. She graduated before I did. And so she was working. And so I knew she couldn't come get me. Hmm. Um, Cause I didn't want someone to come like, right. I didn't want someone to say like, Oh my gosh, you know, like, let's get on the phone and talk about it for an hour. I didn't right. want someone to come like, get me and be like, okay, let's leave the house. Like I, I didn't want that because I like, that was almost too much love for me to handle at that moment. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. needed to know that like someone cares about me and will check in on with me with, with me later, but I'm going to have to be responsible for this next part because I can't just keep like, again, working out of my codependency. I can't just keep grabbing onto other people and getting my right. safety out of that. Um, right. And that's what you talk about in the book too. Like, you know, setting up a therapy appointment for somebody that you're walking through mental illness is one thing, but driving them to every appointment or making sure they get to every appointment is another thing. And that's when you become codependent also. And what you're saying, I've learned so well with my own daughter's story of just, you know, when she walked through her depression and self-harm, like as a mom, we just want to fix it and make it all better. And so every time she'd come to me, I'd be like, okay, well, let's do this or this or quote a scripture. And it's like that, that does not help being there, listening, them knowing that you are there and a presence to walk through with it and to feel the pain, that it's okay for them to feel the pain and you don't have to fix it and make it better is, is just a huge part of your story. And I think so many others that have, have walked this walk. Um, and so to look back at that, Emmy, and now to see where you are today and still a work in pro- like all of us. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, you talked about this earlier. I'm not sure that we're ever going to all just be fully healed. I mean, I feel that with my eating disorder. Like I'm not where I was, but it's still a struggle. I mean, the depression, I mean, and I'm sharing my oldest daughter, some of her story because she has shared it publicly on my friend Tasha's podcast. Otherwise I would not be sharing her walk with mental illness, but it's just very, very aware that this is going to be something that's just part of your story. And the degree can vary through day to day, month to month, week to week. And I want to talk about, I think the last two chapters are so profound talking about the boundaries and self-care. But before we do that, because you know how me, I am with scripture, Emmy, and I just need your pastoral, like, I need some more help with this because still what goes through my mind are those responses that the church throws out and they're in the Bible. You know, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. Well, then if you have an addiction, you must not be filled with the fruit of the spirit. You must not be filled with the spirit. Um, you know, don't worry or don't be afraid. And you address some of these in the book, but can you go into this a little bit for those wrestling that still hear those, those voices through their head, you know, that, you know, joy comes in the morning. I mean, all of those things that if you're walking with the Lord, you should have joy. I mean, I know happiness and joy differ, but you still should have joy. And so many of us don't. And we feel like, okay, our faith must be slipping or not strong enough, or we need to pray more. So dive into that a little bit, put your pastor hat on and tell us how to work through that. Those of us that have been hurt by those verses and still wrestling with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that those verses and our, and the, and the church's use of those verses presumes is, I mean, you use the words, no, not self-control. That's not quite it. Um, just like, just like self-authority, self-governing. Okay. It presumes that you have the capacity to do those things. One of the things that we know biblically and, and, you know, in based in reality as well, is that we don't have the capacity to physically heal all of our ailments, right? We can certainly talk about experiences in scripture, experiences in the world where people um, achieve healing through, you know, like there are stories of healing that I don't want to discount of spiritual healing. There are, you know, stories of people who are able to, you know, 
improve their lives through positive thinking and meditation and things like that. Um, and I never want to discount those, but you know, if you, if you break a foot, you need to put it in a cast. You need to do physical therapy after it's out of the cast to make sure all those muscles and tendons rebuild and reconnect, um, and that the bones are strengthened and healed properly. And prayer would certainly help with that, or at least redirect your mind when that cast is just so itchy on your skin, but we would never say to someone, if your foot's broken, all you need to do is pray. Yeah. And what we know about mental illness is that it is not something that is just in our minds that our brains just sort of cook up for fun or not even our brains that our spirits just cook up for fun and are in no way physically grounded. We know that medication makes a difference. We know that for some people, I should say for some people, medication makes a difference for some people. Medication is a really difficult process. Um, I want to attend to that, but for some people, medication helps for some people, Mm -hmm. exercise changes things Um, on particular kinds of exercise for some people, the food you consume changes things. Um, and like our bodies are a part of our reality, right? Mm -hmm. There's a, there's this weird strain in the Christian church that likes to act as if we are just spirits, like not even just our brains, because a brain still has physical components, but like, we're just spirits. And one of the things that I love about the Jesus story is that God becomes fully enfleshed and incarnate. Mm -hmm. Like God has a brain made of, you know, like fatty tissue and electricity and ooze. And God has a, like God has thumbs and God has forearms. God can stub his toe. Like it, like the embodied nature of God is important. In fact, it's, it's so important that in the early church, there's this, you know, um, there's this, what it ends up being called a heresy called docetism that Jesus was basically just like a ghost. It's, he seemed to be physically real, but he wasn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the the early Christian church was like, absolutely not. No, 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 no. Jesus was a physical body. Um, and I think the interesting thing about that is we still sort of act like we're supposed to be, you know, oh, we look like physical bodies, but really we're, you know, we're just spiritual beings having a physical experience. And I'm like, well, yeah. And that physical experience makes a difference for us. Um, so first I want to attend to that of, we, we know, um, for people who live with mental illness, who, um, who are experiencing often a chemical imbalance in some way in their physically embodied spirit, in their brains. Um, the, the prescription of, you know, joy comes in the morning does not stick the way that it sticks mm-hmm. for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reasons, right? We can talk about genetics. We can talk about generational trauma. We can talk about nature versus nurture. Like what's the, the circumstance that you grow up in, which is the second part is that I think there are situations in which the joy of the Lord is trying to break, break through to us mm-hmm. and other things are keeping it at bay. Um, to say to someone who is, um, to say to the family of George Floyd here in my own city, well, joy com- comes in the morning would be such a misread of the situation. Right. Right. Um, you know, like his, his, his to, to say to any mother of a, a dead child, like, well, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. You really, you really did not read the room here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think for some of us living with mental illness, we are experiencing it within certain systems that encourage it or thrive on our, our symptoms. Um, there are certain situations that in which are like for, especially like anxiety, depression, and other mood disorders are helpful. If you cannot determine your own self-worth and you, but you will accept self-worth evaluations from let's say a teacher or a professor or a boss, you might be more productive at work and you might be more willing to take on overtime or outperform your colleagues or do things because you cannot get a sense of your own sort of self-worth. And so there's these situations in which I think the joy of the Lord is really like knocking on our hearts but there are systems that are barring the door and just going like that, that can't come in because it will disrupt the whole, the whole nature we've got going here. And I mean, the gaslighting, you talk about that too, is part of it. And I mean, as you're talking, you know, like saying that to George Floyd's family, I mean, I think the other thing that people hear is, you know, God uses all things for his glory or what he meant for evil. You can for good because I've heard them all. And it's just like, you know, with the death of somebody and people grieving, it's like, 
is that helpful or hurtful? Right. And it's powerful when somebody who has experienced the trauma chooses to say that, you know, Joseph is the one who says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used for good. Paul Mm -hmm. says, you know, after being, you know, flogged, arrested, imprisoned, you know, threatened with death, he's the one who says like, God is, you know, using all things to make them like God can work through all things to, to make them good. Um, I don't hear that come out of Jesus' mouth terribly often. (laughs) Like Jesus is usually showing up going like, look, if the fruit is rotten, the tree is rotten. You cut it down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not the, if the fruit is rotten, you just have to accept that the fruit is rotten. And that's just a part of life. Like Mm -hmm. he, he, Jesus is, is not particularly interested in just maintaining suffering. I mean, you see that in all the healings, right? Like Jesus doesn't say to the blind man, like, look, your, your blindness is just, you know, part of like, like God can work through your blindness for glory. Jesus heals the blindness, yeah, which yeah. is, and, and says like, th- this man is blind for God's glory, but entirely because the healing is going to come. It's not about, well, the blindness in and of itself is, is, is a, a gift in some way. Um, so I don't, I think when we, when we hold up these ideas of like, everything's for God's glory, um, or God can work through everything. Like we're rushing to the moment of resurrection because Jesus mm. death, for example, Jesus sacrificial and suffering death, um, is good because he is raised. Yeah. And I think too often the church speaking out of human anxiety around other people's pain. So like, we don't like the, the church, um, and sort of humanity in general, don't like when things hurt and we try to fix them. Mm-hmm when we try to fix them by rushing to the resurrection and being like, don't worry, you know, I'm sorry that you're sad, but everything's going to be fine. Right. Um, we, we've, we've promised resurrection when it hasn't happened yet. Mm. And if yes. we're not speaking resurrection into people's lives, if we're not creating space where they can experience the resurrection, if we're not el- allowing people to resurrect their, their right. bodies and their spirits through medication and therapy, if we're doing, you know, the kind of preaching that says, well, medication is, you know, a tool of the devil because you're not relying enough on Jesus. If we're essentially condemning people to death continually, because we're saying, oh, well, everything's fine. We're rushing to the resurrection in a way that isn't true. Right. So yeah, that's so powerful. And Again, I think that's why people, so many people are deconstructing, they're deconstructing their faith and questioning things that they've been taught and heard. And another, some more things that you go into the book that we don't have time for today, but why just encourage folks to get your book is because you do talk about the instances in scripture where it's like a man, Jesus heals because the man's possessed, possessed with a demon, the exorcisms, like, what do we do with all that? when we look at our own current struggles. And then the other thing that I think is so important that you talk about is this victim blaming abuser protecting mentality that's in so many churches. And we don't have time to get into this because I do want to talk about the boundaries, but I just think that that is such a crucial, crucial just part that the church really needs to look at. And you're really advocating for like a trauma informed church, a trauma informed version of Christianity um, just in a nutshell, before we move on to the boundaries, what what do you mean by that? Just folks that are listening, like a trauma-informed Christianity, a church that is trauma-informed, like a healthy place of healing and not hurting. Yeah. I mean, I could write a whole book on that. Um, I know. Maybe that'll be book number three, mm-hmm. who knows? But mm-hmm. essentially what it means to be trauma-informed is to recognize that people do not have full authority and control over all their actions and thoughts that many people can be informed by or or sort of directed by maladaptive coping mechanisms that they've developed to deal with past trauma. And so things that we say that we might think are gracious or things that we do that we think are normal and that other people should participate in can actually be triggers for re-experiencing trauma. And when that happens, um, our, our job, if we're trauma informed, it's not necessarily to predict all instances of trauma because that's almost impossible, but rather to be responsive to the ways that when people react in ways that we're not prepared for, or we're surprised by to ask, is this person, you know, doing this to hurt me? Or is there something going on that they have experienced previously? That's, that's inspiring them to act this way or react this way. Right. And it's like you said, you could write a whole book on this, but 
I think it's just the, the awareness of what it actually is. And that model is so important, especially for those of us or people that are still at church or in church leadership to just be, be aware of that. And you go into it a little bit more in your book, but again, an important, important aspect of this. So let's shift gears. I mean, do you have like 10 more minutes or no? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, for you always. Oh, thanks. I mean, I could talk to you all day about mental health. <laughs> okay. At the end, you talk about boundaries and self-care which are so important and boundaries that word's been around forever, but I feel like it's more of a buzzword lately because people are finally like realizing, okay, maybe this does have some merit and maybe I do actually need to set this up. Um, Especially I think, you know, coming at least in my own experience, the last year of being more isolated and now coming back, back into contact with humanity and people and family It's like, oh my God, like we really do need these. But unfortunately, the church has not been helpful in this either. I mean, it talks about, you know, it stresses so much of forgiveness or their family or turn the other cheek and self-sacrifice. So it's another area that we're really just have heard, um, gosh, contradictory messages. You know, I feel selfish even for setting up boundaries because it's like, ah, and it's hard, hard to find, um, I guess that healthy definition, but one of the things you said, boundaries enable forgiveness. That's so huge. So huge, Emmy. So talk about this issue of boundaries a little bit, maybe how they've played out in your own life. Um, just where, where you want to go with that. That's important that you think is just a real important part of the topic because it's so needed. It's so needed. Yeah. It's so needed. Yeah. We're very much, um, and particularly in Christian community and particularly, um, people with female assigned bodies are mm-hmm. often taught to not have boundaries. And I talk about this a little in the, that like the church is almost built on that. Like boundaries are offensive to the church when someone says, you know what? No, I can't volunteer. I can't do this thing that you're expecting of me. Um, that, that can shut down, you know, basic pathways of church functionality and and the hierarchy does not respond well to that. Mm-hmm. Um Boundaries enable forgiveness because forgiveness is not simply a process of saying to another person, oh, it's fine, which I think is how we're taught. I think culturally and Christianity wise, we're taught forgiveness is just saying to the other person, it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's fine. It's not a problem. Like when we tell people to forgive their abusers, for example, and we hear this in a lot of Christian contexts, it's like, you should just forgive your abuser, especially if the abuser happens to be, you know, a pastor, like you should just forgive them. Um, like, you know what Jesus said to forgive. And the just forgive appears to mean when you sort of hammer out what are the steps to forgiveness, pretending that it never happened. You don't bring it up again. You don't show symptoms of having experienced trauma. You are able to sit in the same room with this person. You continue participating as you did in the community. Normally, this person is not asked to change any of their behavior. This person does not lose any leadership positions, things like that. And a lot of people lean on this, like, well, Jesus said to forgive 70 times seven, which happens right in the middle of this story about like, what is forgiveness? And especially Jesus goes into structures of forgiveness within the community where what happens is first, the person who is hurt speaks that hurt to the person who hurt them. So it's not just like, oh, did I hurt you? I'm sorry. Oh, it's fine. No, it's a a naming of all of the steps of what happened. Um, And then if the other person refuses to accept it and apologize and repent, which repentance is about changing behavior. Right. um, If the, if the, if the person who's caused the problem refuses to repent, then it, then you involve other people. And mm-hmm. then if they still refuse to listen, you bring it to the whole church. Like, whoa, that is a very different structure <laughs> than what we've been seeing happening to like Rachel um, Den Hollander and like other people, primarily women who are bringing forward accusations of abuse. We saw it happen in the Catholic church. We now see it happening throughout the Southern Baptist convention and in non-denominational churches Uh, which are basically the same thing. Uh, I'm sorry, that was a snide remark that isn't fair to some people. So a lot of churches that identify as non-denominational are actually teaching and preaching basic Baptist theology and come out of Baptist traditions that simply shed the name Baptist because non-Baptists often have a negative reaction to it. So they continue getting money from Baptist institutions, getting pastors from Baptist um, schools, you know, preaching Baptist theology, but they don't use the name because people don't like the name because they don't like the theology, but they just package it up nicer. I realized as I said that, like, that's not fair. It's assuming that people know certain things. The kind of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about is a system of account of, of listening and accountability and repentance and responsibility 
which is n- not what we're um, seeing enacted. Uh, it's not the same as cancel culture in sort of the extreme that we often see it parodied in the secular world today of like you do, you know, you do one wrong thing and your whole life is over. Um, but there is there is this middle space that Jesus invites us to of not saying, oh, it's not a problem or, OK, you're canceled forever. But this space of saying, like, you need to take accountability for your actions. Yeah. And yeah. that's what boundaries do. If you don't have a sense of who you are and what when someone else has crossed those, you know, has crossed a line with you physically, mentally, emotionally, you can't say, speak forgiveness because right. you don't have the capacity to say how you were hurt. If you don't have any boundary. boundary. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to set up. I mean, even listening to you say this, I'm like, well, that's exhausting to set up really. I mean, and it's uncomfortable, especially with family or friends. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and I, I go back to thinking about things that I even taught to women about, you know, self-sacrifice and giving up yourself. And the first thing that comes to mind, even like setting boundaries with family is like, gosh, that's rude and unloving to them. Mm-hmm. Or I don't want to hurt their feelings. So it's mm-hmm. like, how, how have you worked to get past that? Because you have come to this place where you're, you're good. I'm assuming at setting boundaries. <laughs> yes. Are you? No, no, you're not. Okay. never mind. <laughs> it's very hard how you get to that place to be able to do it, that you're worth it. And that the uncomfortability is worth it. I mean, I, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes first yeah. of all. Um, so I learned to set up boundaries because of Al-Anon. Um, and one of the, like the moment that I knew that I'd actually worked through some stuff in, as far as my codependency, because codependency can put, you know, can essentially erase your boundaries was I kept dating in succession, like women who, um, couldn't provide like what, I, who, who were not on the same page as me as far as what I wanted, which was like, yeah. I was my, my life track was like, I wanted to get married. I wanted to be a pastor. And I kept dating women that were like, I just kind of want to, I'm not like ready for marriage or love mm-hmm. or like those long-term commitments. And I kept being like, well, but nobody else will love me. So I'm just going to do this. Yes. Um, and when I finally knew that I was actually beginning to establish some boundaries was when somebody said that to me, like, oh, well, that's not really what I'm looking for. And I went, okay, then this isn't the right, like, this is the wrong relationship. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think we're done here. Like, we're not, I'm not going to call you my girlfriend anymore. And I suddenly went like, oh my gosh, I actually like valued my own values. Yeah, like yeah. what I wanted, What it sounds like I realized how stereotypical, like, Christian autumn girl in like the white turtleneck and the sweater of like, I'm just looking for marriage. But really what I wanted was the sense of like that state, like a committed and stable lifelong relationship. And I was like almost 30 at that point. I don't think it was an unusual thing to want, but the moment where I got to the, the, like, you know what, as much as I want to be in a romantic relationship and as much as I'm enjoying my time with this person, this is not actually going to be good for me. I know that one of the values that I have and one of the things that I'm seeking is this long-term committed relationship and you're not interested in that. I think no one's at fault here. It's not she's bad and I'm good or I'm bad for having boundaries. It's simply like, I have the things that I want and you have things that you want and they don't work together. So first I got to experiment with that, you know, in context of like really transient situations, Mm -hmm, right. That mm -hmm. wasn't a family member. That wasn't my, my wife. That wasn't a child. That was Mm -hmm. an experience that wasn't going to completely upend my life. And so that's informed some of the ways that I do boundaries. Now I married somebody with really exceptional boundaries and also who kind of holds me to account. So I do sometimes joke that like one of your best options is to marry up um, mm-hmm. marry someone. What does that don't... look like as somebody that's like, not to, what does that look like to marry? Up? <laughs> no. What does that look like when you say your wife has really exceptional boundaries? Cause again, this is an area I'm working on and I want to wake. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. You... So she, she doesn't bring work home okay. for example. Um, and again, she works a really emotionally demanding job mm-hmm. and we have friends who will sometimes reach out and be like, Hey, you know, what does this lump on my cat's head mean? Yeah. And she has learned that she has to have boundaries of like, I mean, most of the time you can't diagnose over a, a Facebook photo anyway. Right. So it's just like, well, you need to go to the doctor anyhow. Um, <laughs> but she's learned that like, nope, that's not the relationship yeah. that I want to have with the world. Yeah. She does not take on my emotions. Mm, that's So good. if I have a rough day at work, if I'm stressed out about something else, not about us, even if I'm frustrated with her, um, cause we have different ideas about lots of different things. We've been living through a home reno for six months, um, which has exposed all of our differences. And 
like, even if I'm frustrated with her, she does not take that on as her responsibility to fix. God, that's huge. I I appreciate you saying that because we don't always look at boundaries like that. We look at it more like a physical distancing or, but that is huge. And people like myself, you that are codependent Mm -hmm. and have dealt with family members with mental, like that's part of my story too. And so it's like that in itself is a huge one. So that's why I appreciate, I appreciate hearing like, what, what do actually healthy boundaries look like? Cause as mom, moms, women, somebody that's very empathetic, I am, or it's like, it's hard not to do that. But her saying like, no, this is another one that I set up. That's huge. So, okay. Yeah. You married up, Emmy. Good job. I do. I joke about that all the time. And then I feel bad because I know that a lot of people are navigating, like, how do you have boundaries within an established relationship? Mm -hmm. It's not fair to Mm -hmm. just be like, well, just make sure you marry somebody who's done more therapy than you. Um, (laughs) And really like this is figuring out as you go with your own boundaries, because you're figuring out yourself, what, what adds to your health and wellness and what takes away from it. So I feel like a lot of the boundary it's complicated and hard, but it is so much figuring out as you go. One of your questions, and then I know we'll need to wrap up here, but one of the questions you ask at the end of this chapter is when do you cross your own boundaries and why? So tell me about that question and your answer, because that's what I'm like really deeply thinking about. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, when do you overextend yourself or when do you Mm. speak into yourself? So for a lot of people, we talk in, you know, therapeutic language about like, you wouldn't say that to your friend. So why do you say it to yourself? Mm -hmm. Um, and so that might be part of crossing your own boundaries of like, I would never say to a friend, like, oh, you look fat in that, but that's something that I stand in front of the mirror and say, and I'm, I'm assuming having walked with people through um, a lot of different disordered eating journeys, that that's a tape that might play, have played in your head at some point Mm -hmm. of like looking at, like, you don't necessarily say those other, those things to other people, but you'd say it to yourself. Um, and if someone said it to you, you'd be like, get out and Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, so that's one way of crossing boundaries for me. Um, I will often overextend myself at work. Um, I will sometimes overpromise my, my schedule capacities or, um, just not like, just, just not manage my, my time and energy well in this sort of like, well, that's a problem for future Emmy. And that's crossing the boundaries of future Emmy of just like, yes. well, I'll deal with it later. Um, nope, nope, nope. We need to deal with it now. Um, one of the things that my therapist said to me, so I'm doing, um, ACT therapy, which is acceptance and commitment, which is like, you make peace with your feelings and actions, and then you like follow through on them. And I hate it. I hate it so much. Um, (laughs) none of this is fun. Okay. No, the the healing, the boundaries, the therapy, but it's better than the alternative being stuck in. Exactly. That's the point. That's the point is it's better than Mm -hmm. like, it's more healing than the alternative. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Like pushing off problems for future Emmy. I've had to get to this point of like accepting what my therapist has said, which is sometimes the shortest, the quickest way to fix a problem is to deal with it because my system is usually to avoid the problem and hope mm-hmm. that it just magically resolves itself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then count on the fact that in the past, um, I've been able, you know, like I can think fast enough on my feet. I can improvise and sort of fix the problem when it finally rears its ugly head. Right. But what if instead I addressed the problem before it ever got to that point and dealt with the conflict early on rather than, you know, having anxiety about it for 18 months? Because like, you know what, it turns out if I address it right away, then I'm, then I'm done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes that's crossing my own boundaries of like, I know for me, a boundary is to deal with, like, I need to deal with the conflict earlier because otherwise it causes me great anxiety but I choose not to. And then I'm crossing my own boundaries. Like I know these things about myself, but I'm not living into them. Um, like you're speaking to me. I mean, yes, yes. yes sorry. Relate right here. Right. <laughs> I don't want to deal with that fire until it's like actually consuming me. Okay. Exactly. If right, we right, can right. Just, just like ignore it, it'll just, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's oh. like teeth. If I ignore it, it'll go away. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, no, that is not. such a good, good question. And like I said, your book, every chapter has these great reflective questions. You have resources listed at the end of every chapter. I've already bought a couple of them. We have to wrap up here because I, otherwise I'd love to get your chapter on self-care, but that's why folks just need to get your book because there you go. all the things that we're told about self-care are just completely like you talk about. It's like this quick commodified consumerism self-care. It's not going and getting your, you know, a massage. I mean, that can be helpful for temporary fixes, but it's more the long-term. So 
folks need to get your book, All Who Are Weary. Gosh, I mean, it's just such a resource. It's a gift. And I just thank you again for just giving of yourself. I mean, really, but writing a book is, I can't even imagine that task. So you pouring yourself into another one. Um, tell us where folks can find you, find your book, all of that. And we'll sure. put links, of course, like always. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emmy Kegler, E-M-M-Y-K-E-G-L-E-R. And you can find links to stuff I'm working on, um, and as well as pre-order links for the book on my website, emmykegler.com. That's pretty much it. I'm, I, as I mentioned, I'm on a, I am a co-host on another podcast. That's Cafeteria Christian. We drop an episode every Monday uh, and your folks are welcome to follow us there. Uh, we just talked about the book on that podcast too. So, you know, um, you'll just get a double dose. And um, other than that, you can usually find me staring out my front window at the gorgeous golden maple that has turned. Um, so I encourage all of you to also make sure to get some time to appreciate whatever nature is giving you around you today. That's right. Especially before your Minnesota winter comes, right? Soak, soak in the sunshine. Sorry. Why did I have to end on that downer note? No, no you're fine. Just, this, you're not going to be coming up here for dinner for a couple of months. Not, not the winter person at all. I mean, you know, I lived in Iowa for many years and yep. goodness, I was kind of glad to That's, get out of it. Honestly, I think I was even worse because at least a minute, like the twin cities, we've gotten to the point of sort of communal, um, disassociation from reality where we start to pretend that we enjoy the snow uh-huh, and we uh-huh. do like, Oh, we've got the, you know, the luminaria lopet and we do all these like right. winter sports, go outside, do things, right. beer, beer dabbler, come drink outside while it's 30 below. And when you're in Iowa, like if the city's just, if the city's smaller, you're out in the country, you don't have that sort of collective, um, insanity and oh, so it's actually like we're isolated yeah, yeah we're just isolated inside and yeah. no i i totally agree i'm like huh i've seen minnesota i'm like they make the most of this they really do they we celebrate do. it and yeah so no it, it will probably be spring before i make it up your way i mean it's just fine <laughs> oh emmy i love you and i appreciate you so much thank oh, you again too. for joining me today absolutely it's always such a pleasure so thank you so much for having me